Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, we take you to a place where post-workout recovery is a very serious business. Then in the kick, we have more, well, unique records to talk about. Two coming on the indoor track at a distance that requires more mental stamina than physical and a ridiculously fast time while wearing a full business suit. But first, an interview with Jared Ward. Jared is a statistician, a numbers geek, and an Olympic marathoner. During his conversation with contributing editor Scott Douglas, we were surprised to learn that Jared, a lover of data points, does not love running with his GPS watch. I like my simple Timex watch for just uh, going out and and having an indicator at the end of a run for what I ran so that I know, but while I'm in the middle of the run, I'm just running by feel. And if I'm doing something that's pace specific, I'm gonna be on a course where I know where the mile marks are, or coach is gonna be there or something, and so um, so I'll get the, the specific paces you know, out there while I'm running, but I, I don't like the constant feedback of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going seven minute miles today instead of six or whatever it is. I love this conversation. It's fascinating to get into the mind of a runner like Jared, and it's helped me think about marathon pacing in a new way myself. That's coming up. Thanks for joining us. Jared Ward is not your typical elite athlete. He's got a lot of interests, and he does a pretty good job of blending his passions. Case in point, he analyzed marathon pace times for his master's thesis. And when he's not out logging miles or collecting rocks, another interest of his, he's teaching statistics at Brigham Young University. In February 2016, Jared came in third at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials in Los Angeles, behind Galen Rupp, who won, and Mev Kofleski. And at the Summer Games in Rio this past summer, he ran a PR of 2.11.30 and placed sixth. Jared's now in the homestretch of training for his Boston Marathon debut. He spoke with Scott Douglas from his university office about the trials, the Olympics, and Boston, and the thing he might just love most of all, data. So one of the main things that you're known for is that you did your master's thesis in statistics on marathon pacing. And we will get to the practical part of that soon. But first, um, I just want to hear a little bit about the theoretical. What did your master's thesis say? And what did your master's thesis add to knowledge on the topic of marathon pacing. <laughs> well, if we get too theoretical, all you're going to do is add to the uh, campaign of stuff that has labeled me the running nerd. Okay. <laughs> um, but I guess in reality, I guess the, the outcomes of the theory was that it seemed like the runners that were hitting Boston Mar Marathon qualifying marks were those that did a better job at starting the race more conservatively and did a better job at at running the um, running the terrain appropriately, they slowed down on the uphill and they ran faster on the downhill. Whereas the more average runners uh, started faster than than um, the pace that they could maintain throughout the race, and uh, they kind of ran the same pace throughout the rest of the race, uphill, downhill. It was all more similar. Whereas the uh, the Boston Marathon qualifiers, you could see um, more disparity in pace throughout the race depending on terrain. This was at the St. George Marathon in Utah, is that correct? Correct, can you yeah. At, can you describe that course? Yeah, very much a downhill course. So we had four splits. So it was pretty much, you know, four roughly 10K uh, sections of the course. And so the second 10K had some uphill in it. The third 10K has the most significant downhill. And... Um, and so we used these four splits and we looked at factors like did the did the the finisher hit a Boston Marathon qualifying mark and male and female and age and uh, you know a whole bunch of things like that and then tried to tease out what's uh what's happening in the pacing profiles of people across these variables 
and uh, and it was cool to see some of that stuff and and you know even a little further that um, that females typically do a better job at pacing than males at least if we use uh, runners that hit a Boston Marathon qualifying mark as as kind of a baseline there and also that as we age we get a little bit better at pacing um, at least into our 40s and 50s you know after that uh, it seemed to kind of revert there it was kind of interesting too to look at how potentially runners can continue to improve even past their physical primes because they become smarter racers so right. just some data like that that was you know it's fun for me to pour over you had to have had thoughts like well why why are women better and why were the <laughs> master's runners better what what did you form any theories oh sure um i think women are better because they they probably do most things better at least uh at least uh in in my experience in our family with my wife and um you know even kids it seems like the girls make uh, often more calculated and less impulsive decisions um but uh and maybe that's a, a generality so i hope i'm not offending anybody but um you know, for the older guys, I, you know, the the theory um, is hopefully that we just get better at racing and better at running the marathon as we get older. And so, you know, my my hope is that the the reason that the 50 year olds are doing a better job at pacing than the 20 year olds is because they have some experience. And and so I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe that's some of this Meb effect, right, where um, you know, Meb will talk about how he maybe can't do workouts or recovery runs at the same paces that he was able to 10 years ago, but he's still running fast times. Um, and so maybe he's just smarter. And, uh, and so I think that that's encouraging um, for runners that are still trying to improve, even though their age is is clicking into the zone of people saying, well, you're, you know, you're starting to get too old for this or you're over the hill or whatever. Maybe their body is, is, um, physically on the decline, but they, but you can offset some of that with, uh, with superior, you know, strategy and, and knowledge. Right. Did you have any trouble getting your advisors to okay this topic? <laughs> no, they, um, BYU statistics department have been so supportive, uh, of my athletics and academics together. And so, no, they've been, uh, overly supportive of, uh, these worlds overlapping. Okay. Did the, did your research have any effect on your approach to racing? Sure. I very heavily read into my experience through the five marathons that I've run and what workouts were leading up to them and how I executed the race in terms of nutrition and pacing and all of those things, because I think that those, you know, that's the gold standard. Um, everybody's body responds a little bit differently to running 26 miles and everyone's preparation is a little different. And so I think the best baseline that you can get is personal experience, but but we want to feed it with other information as much as we can. So I certainly would say that uh, that the research that I've done at least plays into how I think. Now, in my thesis, we said, okay, the Boston Marathon qualifiers did a better job at running faster on the downhill portions than the average runners. So maybe that doesn't apply directly to me, but if I can extrapolate a little and say, well, maybe it means I need to be better prepared to take advantage of terrain. You know, if you're running up a hill, um, you should probably be running slower than if you're running down a hill, at least if you're trying to maintain the same metabolic rate through a marathon. And so um, that has influenced me in preparing for running downhill a little bit faster so that my legs can handle it. So I, I do a little bit of training on downhill. I lift weights in the gym, plyometrics and things like that so that maybe I'm a little bit more ready to take advantage of those downhill portions aerobically without the setbacks of banging up my legs by sprinting down a hill. And so I, I have looked into some of that stuff that I think has come from the research, but I would say to reiterate the gold standard is, is experience and learning what works for you. You mentioned your coach. Um, your coach is Ed I. Stone, who is your college coach and who also ran in the 1988 and 1992 Olympic marathons. Correct. And I bring him up because um, 
Mark Conover, who was on the 1988 Olympic marathon team, told me this story once where before the 1988 Olympic marathon, he and Ed said, you know, they were discussing how to race the Olympic marathon. And they, they said they were discussing, you know, should we run safe and pace ourselves or should we go for it? And they agreed, it's the Olympics, let's go for it. And Mark dropped out. Ed, Ed, you know, fell apart and finished 29th. Then in 1992, he ran conservatively, moved up in the second half and finished 13th. Did his experiences affect your approach when you started running marathons? Or would you have done what you do without him having had that those contrasting experiences? You know, Coach, Coach Eyestone has always been very good at letting, you know, letting us athletes have our own experiences. But I think he gives us a lot of latitude in that arena. And so when we sit down and talk about race strategy, he'll say, what are what are goals? You know, and we'll talk about whether he thinks the goals are realistic or stretch. And we'll have those conversations. Well, should we just go for broke because it's the Olympics? But then it's kind of, you know, it's my mind that says, well, what's the probability that if I go out there in Rio... And try to break Eliud Kipchoge. What's the probability that I'm going to break him in the last 5K and win the gold medal? Well, what what was your what was the calculation on that? It's not very good. Okay, <laughs> a lot of z- lot of zeros probably. Okay, right. And so I think and and so we just decided that the best thing that I could do with the likelihood of having the highest result was to figure out what my training indicated I was ready for given the conditions of race morning and then try to maximize that relative to what the rest of the pack is running. And so we have a few theories. We say, well, if the, if the pack goes out um, at five minute pace, what do we do? If the pack goes out at 450 pace, what do we do? Or 520 pace, what do we do? And we try to have a few theories that using and and riding on the coattails of the other runners that are there and and trying to get pulled along but also maximize my personal potential what what scenarios do we take and not take um but then you know that to a certain extent um becomes secondary to how i'm feeling in the middle of the marathon too and and what cues i'm receiving out there and so we have these race strategies and it was built around maximizing my potential and i the biggest goal in in our construction of how you you know, how we were going to break down Rio was what's going to be the best way that I could put myself in a position to capitalize on a podium opportunity if that happens. If someone's going to sneak onto the podium, I want it to be me, right? Yeah. And so so we, we built the strategy around that. And, uh, and I felt like I ran a good race, you know, even in hindsight, I don't know that I could have run 210 low and, and been on the podium. And so there's not shame in saying, well, I'm going to, I'm, you know, this is the Olympics, I'm going for a medal. But I think um, at some point you have to be a little bit realistic too and realize that there is something in the balance. I was excited to cross the finish line in sixth, whether anyone else was excited or not. Um, in fact, the, some of the media had made fun of me after the race for being the most excited sixth place finisher they'd ever seen. But <laughs> but that was something to gain for me, right? And so sure. it wasn't like it wasn't like fourth place through a hundred place through DNF is all the same to me. And so I I ran to hopefully give myself a chance to get on the podium, but to also put together a good day that I can be happy with for the rest of my life if I never make it back to another Olympics. Sure. Well, so you placed sixth. You ran a you ran a personal best by what almost a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Um, I was looking through the start list of that race, and I was counting guys who had faster PRs than you when the race started, and I stopped counting once I got to around thirty. <laughs> you know, so you beat a ton of people who, on paper, should have beat you. Everybody, you know, and it's always possible to have a bad day in the marathon, but. How many of those people could have benefited from the more what's the best way I can run to finish as high as possible versus I'm going for it? Right. And, and uh, you know, and the answer is I don't know. And maybe it's different for everyone. Right. Maybe for some runners out there, fourth place through DNF is all the same. Right. And so maybe for for that runner, the right decision is saying, well, I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. And if the pack breaks away, then I drop out and that's fine. Um, But I think, you know, I think that's something that you have to weigh personally. 
So it worked in terms of you being able to play Psy, it seemed to have worked out pretty well because, you know, the first half was run pretty conservatively. Right. Um, at, you know, around 212 marathon pace. And then, you know, then then things picked up. When you lost contact with the lead pack in the second half of the race, was that a conscious decision? Like, I, if I go with them, then I'm at risk of finishing 35th or was it simply i'm i'm not ready to throw in a two four forty five miles right now you know i think it was a little of both i certainly at at 15 16 miles into the race when that break happened i wasn't feeling great um my stomach didn't feel awesome um i had missed a water bottle um a couple miles before that point so i don't know that i could have at that point said well i'm going to try it and go for it and fortunately um you know four or five miles later i uh my my stomach started feeling a little bit better and i i feel like i caught a second wind there um but i don't know that even in the best of circumstances given my fitness uh that that running 445s in 70 degree heat uh would have been productive for me so i you know i i don't know that it was a conscious decision but it it probably would have been the right decision even under conscious circumstances I have the same question about the Olympic marathon trials, uh, where you were in the lead pack, um, a, lar- a large lead pack, and then around mile 16, there was a break. Tyler Pinnell, Galen Rupp, and Mevklefuzki went and broke away from everybody else, and you didn't go with them. You wound up then, uh, and that was a risk, because in that race, first through third is really all that matters. Right. Um, was that a conscious decision? Um, that was a conscious decision, but that was a harder one um, because there was uh, so much in the balance there. I, you know, watching those three pull away, I was debating, you know, what's the what's the right decision, right? I I have not trained to be running 450s or 445s in this what was probably 80 degrees on the black asphalt heat of LA. I've been training in Utah winters. Um, and I, I knew that I wasn't prepared for that pace for the rest of the race. And, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where, you know, you can, in the middle of the race, you can say, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hang on and go for it and see what happens. And I think that that can work in a 5k on the track when there's five laps to go. Right. But it's, it's kind of a different story. Um, over 10 miles of a marathon when it's hot, I think that you can only expect so much magic from your body. And, and so it, it did become a conscious decision to say, all right, they're pulling away, they're running faster than I can sustain for the rest of the race. And I made the decision to lock the pace that I thought I was prepared for and try to bring it all the way home. But, but, you know, as you mentioned, that was hard. I was watching, I mean, I'm watching Meb and Rupp and Tyler pull away. They're some of the best runners in the field, right? They're the, they're the guys right. that I was watching before the race started. Um, you know, and there was there was maybe 10, 10 runners that I thought, hey, they could make the team, but those three were certainly towards the top of the list. Last time I had raced Tyler Pinnell in a marathon, it was the U.S. Championships in 2014, and he made a move at six miles to go, going up a hill, and I thought, ah, it's too soon, and I never saw him again. And then I'm watching, you know, uh, Rupp pull away and thinking, well, it's his first marathon. Maybe he'll come back, but he probably won't because he's Galen Rupp. He's he's maybe the best distance runner America's ever had. Um, and then Meb Kofleski, you know, I think you know it was kind of redeeming to think, well, he's 40, maybe he'll die, but <laughs> but probably not, right? He uh, right. he, you know, he's won the Boston and New York marathon. He's qualified for three Olympic teams, and he knows his way around the Olympic trials, you know. And so, um, it wasn't very encouraging when I was kind of putting my fate into the hands of those three runners. But um, when I realized that. Uh, that I knew what I was prepared for, and I had come to the Olympic trials to run my best race, and that if I put together my best race, then I could go home happy. That that relieved some of that stress, and I started thinking about me and controlling me and getting me to the finish line as fast as I could. And once I became okay with finishing fourth place 
if I gave it my best effort, then I was really, you know, I, it, it settled me. And I just, I thought, well, okay, I'm just going to relax and roll and, and I'm going to keep in this and we'll see what happens. Um, but that Olympic trials race was, was probably the hardest race of my life. And, and when I hit that finish line, I was, I was done. Yeah, I saw that you were, I believe you. Um, <laughs> uh, I was, I was looking, I'm sure you've looked at the splits from Rio. I looked at the splits from 40 K to the finish. So just 2.2 kilometers only the winner, Elliot Kipchoge, covered that ground faster than you. Um, and you were ninth at 40K. Um, so you are obviously still um, moving much, much better than all the people around you, except for Kipchoge. So, uh, just something. I so sh- yeah, yeah. So should I have run faster earlier? You know, may- maybe so. Um, but I, I really, I think that, um, some of that at the end there was adrenaline and excitement as I saw runners coming back and thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm going to make it into the top 10. And that was encouraging. Right. And I, I wouldn't say that the, that it, when I hit the line in Rio, that I, uh, I was as flattened as I was in LA. And I think part of most of that was that I was just so much more dehydrated in Los Angeles. But I would say that the, the Olympics was, um, one of the hardest races, uh, that I've ever run. I remember hitting the straightaway and, um, and I looked in the straightaway is probably 500 meters or so. And I looked up and knew that I wasn't going to catch anybody else, um, barring something crazy. They were just too far in right. front. And I, I checked over my shoulder and was pretty sure that I wasn't going to be caught either. I, you know, I was kind of, um, you know, 10, at least 10 seconds in front and at least 10 seconds behind and about a quarter of a mile to go. And so I don't expect any movement. And so I kind of thought, all right, this is the, this is how I'm going to finish. And, uh, and this is the position. And I started, you know, cruising at that. And then I noticed the crowds on both sides and the bleachers. And, and I, I thought I may never have another chance to run down the finishing stretch in the Olympic marathon ever again, I'm going to run it as hard as I can. Hmm. And it was kind of a more of a mental switch than anything else. But I just decided I'm just, I'm going to sprint this. Like I'm coming down the home stretch in a track race. So maybe I made up some of that time there in that little uh, home stretch, personal finishing kick. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, if those of us watching the race could follow along and see, oh, you know, he's moving up, he's using ninth at 40K. When did you know that you were in sixth place? Not until after the finish. <laughs> okay. What did what what did you think you were in? Um, I think that I thought I was seventh or eighth by the finish. When I okay. when I made a pass right after forty K, I thought, all right. I'm pretty sure I'm into the top. I was pretty sure I was into the top 10. There had been some people counting. Coach had been yelling at me. Um, But there's periodic, you know, people dropping out of the race too, periodically. And so um, it's hard to know exactly. But I I was pretty sure I had moved into the top 10 just shortly after 40K. And so I was very, I was very encouraged by that. And so I, I finished thinking I was seventh or eighth. Okay. Um, but I was surprised when, I mean, it, frankly, I almost corrected the NBC reporter when he told me I was sixth. Huh. Um, and I'm glad that I didn't. But yeah. <laughs> So you talked about this a little bit at the beginning. Um, wondering, you know, how would you advise non-professionals to use your approach to a knowledge of marathon pacing? Good question. I, I think that the, you know, I think in general, these approaches uh, work across the board for marathon running, um, starting conservative. And conservative doesn't mean necessarily running the first half slower than the second half. It just means not going out um, significantly faster than you're prepared for, hoping that it's just going to be some magical day on the course and uh, things are going to work different than they've ever worked for your body in the past. And so I think 
having a plan and learning what your training indicates for race day and then going out race day and running um, running a race like your training indicates and getting excited out there too. You know, I don't want to turn marathon running into these personal time trials, right? One of, one of the right. funnest things, especially on the elite side, is the race. Um, it's right. exciting to to be thinking ahead to the Boston Marathon in two months and looking at the people in the race and thinking about racing them. And so I don't want to turn it into a, I'm just going to go out there and time trial what I'm prepared for and see where I finish. But you have to have a realistic, a realistic plan. And if, if one of the marathoners coming to Boston that's run 204 in the past decides to open up in 61.30 for half marathon, it's probably not going to be in my best interest to go with them. Last question. Do you ever run without a GPS? Yes, almost always. Oh, okay. Why is that? You know, I... I don't like becoming a slave to the pace that I'm running at, especially on recovery days um, or otherwise. And so I like my uh, I like my simple Timex watch for just uh, going out and and having an indicator at the end of a run for what I ran, so that I know. But while I'm in the middle of the run, I'm just running by feel. And if I'm doing something that's pace specific, I'm going to be on a course where I know where the mile marks are or coach is going to be there or something. And so, um, so I'll get the, the specific paces, um, you know, out there while I'm running, but I, I don't like the constant feedback of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going, um, seven minute miles today instead of six or whatever it is. I don't want to editorialize, but I think that a lot of people will benefit if they take your last answer to heart. <laughs> if, if the numbers guy can can do it then uh it's kind of more fun that way sometimes right <laughs> that was contributing editor scott douglas speaking with elite marathoner and stats professor jared ward for links to stories we have done on Jared, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Coming up, taking recovery to a whole different level. We've all heard about how important post-run recovery is. But for a lot of us, and I definitely put myself in this category too, recovery is one of the easier things to skip in our haste to just wrap things up after our run. Well, contributing editor Cindy Kuzma recently visited a place that will make you think twice about ignoring this most essential part of your workout. It's early on a Wednesday morning in the middle of Chicago winter. It's dark and cold. A group of dedicated athletes have hauled themselves to a 6 a.m. strength training session anyway. It's admirable, but not unusual. A similar scene plays out in gyms all over the city and country every day. Yeah, we had a, a packed strength training class, um, so we've got a lot of sweaty I would say happy, but I think maybe at this point they're just still tired athletes heading down from our upstairs strength studio, and they are heading into showers, getting ready to recover, getting ready to refuel, and get on their day. It's the recovery part of this morning scene that sets it apart from what's happening at most gyms. That's because it takes place at the Edge Athlete Lounge, a training and recovery studio. Edge offers a range of tools to athletes of all kinds and abilities, tools that range from simple massage sticks to state-of-the-art muscle stimulators. The goal is to hasten their body's post-workout recovery so athletes come into their next tough session primed and ready to go. Running coach and trainer Robin Lalonde is one of the owners, along with her husband, Brian. They opened the studio about two years ago because, as Robin explains, the recovery from a workout is just as critical as the workout itself. Recovery really is... You know, medically, your body coming back to that level of homeostasis, which is crazy when you're an athlete because it can take anywhere from 48 to 65 hours to get back to that point. And I don't know about you, but I don't run today and wait three days to run again. So then we have this scenario where maybe I do a recovery run today and a tempo run tomorrow. And then the next day I'm going to lift or do another run. And I'm in a compromised state because my body still has not recovered 
you know, from that tempo effort and I'm heading into doing more effort, but maybe I feel a little lethargic and I'm almost certainly at a greater risk of injury. So recovery for us is trying to hit it same day as training so that that next day you have a fresh start. Our hashtag is fresh legs fast times for that reason. Here's why you shouldn't just collapse into an office chair or the driver's seat after a long or hard run. Hard workouts cause minor muscle damage. The process to repair that damage does two things. It stimulates your muscles to get stronger, which ultimately helps you run faster. And it creates waste products. These waste products can lead to inflammation. Inflammation to some extent is normal. Waste products typically shuttle from hardworking muscles into the circulatory system. From there, they travel to your core and get dumped into your lymphatic system, which eventually removes them. Problems arise if all that detritus hangs out for too long in the circulatory system. This typically happens when we do too many tough workouts in a row with insufficient recovery. The body just doesn't have a chance to clear out all that waste. Inflammation becomes chronic inflammation, which can contribute to illness and injury. EDGE is all about clearing out those waste products ASAP, which means after their workout, whether it's a run, spin class, or a strength session, athletes have immediate access to the latest recovery techniques. The place is reminiscent of a ski lodge with an urban vibe. It has high ceilings, wood-paneled walls, and a huge fireplace and big-screen TV in the middle. Anyone can join, or it costs $35 for a day pass. Again, Robin. It's pretty funny because you never know who you're going to be sitting next to. We had the Hamilton cast in a couple of months ago, and um, a prospective member walked in because he had researched us, and he's sitting in the ice bath, and I learned later that he's actually a White Sox player. <laughs> so <laughs> you literally know, never know who you're going to be sitting next to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we do absolutely have the heaviest slant of um, runners, cyclists, and triathletes. Yeah. Robin walks me around the various recovery stations at EDGE, explaining how they work, I wanted to learn more about the importance of recovery and why some of the tools at EDGE are so effective. I was also curious if runners could replicate a similar regimen at home. So Robin and I started with the foam rollers, where most athletes here begin. Foam rollers are probably the most familiar recovery tool to runners. They can help improve circulation and ease muscle tightness before it causes injury. There's a huge variety of shapes and sizes here, from squishy cylinders you roll on top of to handheld, wand-like sticks you can roll over your quads. Edge also has something called the R8. It's a deep tissue roller with two rows of wheels that squeeze together in a vice-like grip to massage aching muscles. 32-year-old runner and triathlete Emily Rollins refers to it as Mr. Clampy. It's like rollerblade wheels, essentially, and it just kind of clamps, and it makes it easier to kind of get into the muscles, and whereas sometimes with foam rolling, you're contorting yourself in all different positions. Um, this kind of makes it easier... Um, to get to some, especially like, like I have some IT band issues, so it really helps kind of get into there and loosen it up. Of course, foam rolling is also one of the easiest things to do at home. Aim for five to ten minutes a day, Robin says, ideally while your muscles are still warm. Avoid rolling over joints, ligaments, and bones. If you hit a sensitive or stubborn spot, hover over it gently to work it out. Also, make a note of the spot in your training log. If you notice a trend in these notations, Robin recommends seeing a massage therapist, physical therapist, or chiropractor. Our next stop is in the back of the lounge where there are two giant tubs full of salt water. They look just like jacuzzis, and indeed, one of them is a steamy 100 degrees. The other is painfully cold, 50 degrees to be exact, and that's the one athletes like 28-year-old Becca Menke hop in first. It's very cold. Um, the first two minutes are pretty awful, but I, um, I wrap the towel around my neck just, well, one for warmth, but also have to, like, something to do with my hands so I can grab onto something so they won't, like, go in the water or get tired sitting on the, whew, it's cold. <laughs> um, the, usually after about two minutes, you'll settle into it and go numb, so can't wait for that. <laughs> How long are you planning to stay in today? Um, I'm going to do a contrast. So um, a contrast being that you first start in the ice bath and then go into the hot bath. So I'll do eight minutes here in the ice bath, eight minutes in the hot bath, and then I'll come back for four minutes here in the uh, cold ice bath. And is this something you do once a week? Uh, how often are you doing this? Um, I usually do it once a week, um, usually after a long run on Saturdays. Um, I've been feeling a little sore and a little tight, so I'm deciding to do it midweek as well. By going from cold to hot and back again within 30 minutes of her workout, Becca is hastening the flushing of waste products. 
here's how it works. Before she hits the cold water, her blood vessels are wide open thanks to the effort of her workout. Waste products are being carried in her blood, away from her tired muscles, to her core and her lymphatic system, where, as we know, they'll eventually be eliminated. As soon as she hits the cold water, this process accelerates. The blood vessels constrict in an effort to protect her vital organs. That sends the blood and all its waste products in a mad rush from her extremities to her core. Hitting the hot tub opens the blood vessels up again. This releases more waste products that she can quickly flush out again by jumping back into the frigid water. The result? A more rapid clearing of all that inflammation-inducing waste. Now, personal refrigeration doesn't exactly sound comfortable. And if you talk to EDGE members, you'll hear over and over again about the notorious first two minutes in the ice bath. In fact, it's the only thing at EDGE that should hurt, Robin says. But at least it's over relatively quickly. When we go back to check on Becca midway through her ice bath, she looks a lot more relaxed and less, well, blue. It's much better. I'm basically numb at the moment, so it's, uh, I, I'm not shaking or shivering as much, so it's, I, I feel good. <laughs> How much time do you have left? Uh, just about two minutes. I saw you checking your Garmin there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. No, I know exactly how much time I have left. <laughs> While the cold-hot, cold contrast might work best, a single stint in a cold bath can be beneficial, says Robin. Just fill your tub with cold water and dissolve about two cups of Epsom salt. The minerals in the salt help the cool water better penetrate your skin. Put some ice in it until it gets to around 50 degrees. You can check it with a regular thermometer. Make sure you're warm before you get in. Remember, you want those blood vessels dilated. So do it within about 30 minutes of your workout. Then try to stay in for about 10 minutes. From there, Robin and I walk onto the main floor at Edge, where people are reclining in what appear to be the most comfortable leather chairs you can imagine. Some of them are wrapped in blankets, eating oatmeal, and a lot of them are working on their laptops, taking advantage of the free Wi-Fi. Before member Kerry Black settles into his chair, he zips up his compression boots. The boots are made of a canvas-like material and cover his legs from the balls of his feet to the tops of his thighs. They're hooked up to a console that inflates, then deflates, the air bladders inside of them in a sequential order. Carey adjusts the pressure and rhythm of the inflation using dials on the console. With his boots inflated, Carey's bottom half looks a little like a marshmallow man. He settles in and starts working on his laptop. About midway through his boot session, Robin recommends athletes sit in the boots for up to an hour. I asked Carrie how it feels. It's uh, actually pretty relaxing, and I really didn't notice how necessarily the benefits until the day after. Usually after a long run, the day after you feel kind of tight and groggy, and it was an immediate uh, effect the day after where I was up and moving around. While Carrie's checking email, the boots are doing essentially the same thing as a contrast bath shuttling blood back and forth between his legs and his core, maximizing circulation and decreasing inflammation. Robin says that compression garments, like snug tights, calf sleeves, or socks, can have a similar effect. And as long as they're comfortable, you can wear them for as long as you want. Robin has even been known to sleep in hers. I love to rock them during um, training, and then I'll actually have separate pairs for recovery that I use either overnight or for the rest of the day. Um, and definitely during travel, I'm flying on Friday, and I already have all of my compression socks packed because I know I feel so much better. And on days like today when I'm here for 15 hours, you know, I'm teaching two classes and probably two hours of semi-privates. Um, I'll have compression socks on the whole time, and, and I really do feel better at the end of the day because I'm, I'm creating that positive circulation. You can enhance the effect by spending about 5 or 10 minutes lying on the floor with your legs up the wall, letting gravity help you with that blood flow. On the super high-tech end of recovery options available at EDGE are things like laser therapy, which helps athletes like Megan Marks address her nagging aches and pains. Megan is sitting with her left leg crossed over her right and moving a laser in small circles along the back of her left heel and ankle. The laser looks like a chunky white pen with a bright red tip. The tip, which is the actual laser, is nestled between small metal plates that deliver bursts of electrical stimulation. Megan and Robin call it STEM for short. The light and the electrical current work together to move inflammatory waste products away from the area and jumpstart healing. I ask Megan to talk me through it. So I have Achilles issues, so I'm just running it over the Achilles to help bring more blood flow into the area. Then it's a two-minute cycle. You can do it two times on each area. What does it feel like? Well, 
it feels like someone's like tickling you really awfully. Um, you can't feel the laser at all, but it's like a prickling sensation when it's on the skin. And does it feel, does the injury feel better right afterward? Does it kind of loosen up over time? How would you describe um, how right it helps? A- right after, it definitely feels a lot looser. Sometimes I'll do it before I work out if I wake up and my Achilles is really, really tight. Um, but the next day is definitely a noticeable difference after using the stem. Robin gives a little more perspective. Yep, we call that the magic eraser. Um, It's a pretty interesting device because it was actually created initially for people with rheumatoid arthritis so that they could have a way to manage their pain transdermally so that they wouldn't have to take as many oral meds. But then several years ago, they were able to release it much more to the general public and they really realized it was fantastic for sports treatment on areas that don't have a ton of muscle. So areas that are heavy on tendons, heavy on ligaments, heavy on bone. So we're talking about like fronts of shoulders, elbows, wrists. Um, We have a lot of people that use it on knees, ankles, Achilles like Megan was, um, also bottoms of feet and arches, even tops of feet areas, again, that just don't tend to have a ton of circulation going on that tend to take a little bit longer to heal. I'll admit, it was exciting to be surrounded by this stuff. It's cool to think that there are places like this where we weekend warriors can treat ourselves like elites. And when Robin and Brian first created Edge, they did so precisely with the weekend warrior in mind. The person who has to juggle work, family, and all the other life responsibilities, but who still wants to train hard. People like member Alfred Rufin, 37, who just ran his first 100-miler. He came in fifth place. His training often consisted of epic back-to-back long runs. He credits all the time he spent in the contrast baths and compression boots for keeping him healthy and consistent with his grueling training regimen. And yeah, I just had a really good day out there. So. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Do you so. think recovery played a role in, in your success? Oh yeah, definitely. I was doing um, 30 mile, like for two months I was doing 30 mile Saturday runs and then 20 mile, you know, Sunday runs. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was something like that. That was like generally like what I was doing over the weekend so definitely helped to um, come in here on Saturday recover and then run the following day so some edge members are elites like professional athlete Haley Dance who won a silver medal in the Paralympic triathlon in Rio last year and currently holds the world record in the marathon for above the knee amputees for Haley the time she spends here on her recovery helps her both physically and psychologically I think for me, um, there's an element of relaxation that takes place here. And I think that, you know, in our training, we're just so, um, you know, jacked up all the time, running on high energy all the time. And this kind of just like helps me bring things down. Um, And especially going into a race week, it's nice to just feel really cool and collected. And uh, and the pugs play an important role in that, you think? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'll never forget, um, I was here a couple weeks ago, I did a 20-miler on the treadmill, um, which, yeah, in itself was (laughs) interesting. I was getting towards the end, and it was getting really, really hard, Um, and I actually, I stepped off the treadmill for a couple minutes, and I went over to the pugs, and (laughs) they gave me a little bit of love, and you know how pets just have that, like, intuitive ability to just make things better, Um, and... It gave me the little extra motivation to finish the run. (laughs) In fact, that's another secret to the edge sauce, says Robin. We have a very important element of our business that I like to talk about. I have to be careful not to talk about it too much. It is our um, pug covery system, which consists of our two dogs, Bruce and June. It's kind of ironic that we have pugs in a place of (laughs) endurance, (laughs) strength, training. Not necessarily known for their uh, their endurance. No, but maybe in their hearts, in their souls, yeah. It's clear that athletes here find great companions and have access to state-of-the-art tools that help flush waste, speed recovery, and prime their bodies for the next big effort. But as we've heard, there are ways to replicate the essence of edge. You can foam roll, draw your own ice bath if you dare, and squeeze yourself into compression garments. I had a long run scheduled that weekend, so I asked Robin, what should I do as soon as I walk back in the house? Right, so if you're coming on off of that, I'm going to let you do maybe 5 to 10 minutes of, of foam rolling um, and then maybe 10 minutes of legs out the wall and then throwing on some compression afterward to keep that positive circulation up. So that's kind of if you're if you're building your own mini recovery BYO. spot. Huh? BYO edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> BYO edge. And if you want to get even more basic, Robin says ending your workout with some gentle motion. 
a half-mile walk, a few minutes of cycling or rowing, or some dynamic stretches. Also keeps your blood vessels open and waste products moving to jumpstart recovery. I could definitely do that. Thanks to Robin, I've learned proper recovery isn't complicated, but it is important. Because after all, the fresher your legs, the faster your times. That was contributing editor Cindy Kuzma at Edge Athlete Lounge in Chicago. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and digital editor Chris Michael. Okay, so if if you're a fan of The Kick, and I know there are people out there, I, I read the iTunes reviews, um, I guarantee you will love one of our new newsletters that launched earlier this year. It's the Runner's World Warm-Up. It's in your inbox every morning, every weekday morning. Mm -hmm. It's written by Chris Michael, who's here with us again this week doing The Kick. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Brian? You know, we put a lot of, like, motivating, inspiring stories, races of the week, just things to stay on top of. doesn't even have to be from Runner's World. It's just stuff we love out in the world. And the story we want to talk about first is a perfect example of that. It's really a viral hit. If you haven't seen it, you're one of a few people in the running world who didn't see it. Um, this story from the Philadelphia Love Run Half Marathon this past Sunday, it, it went crazy because of uh, a very unique finish. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, this is a video that had almost uh, 27 million views. Yeah, as of like Wednesday morning. Yeah. When you look at the video, you know, what you see is uh, it's, a, it's a half marathon race and there's a woman and she's sort of slowing down. People are running past her and she sort of stumbles and she starts to almost fall. Yeah, and it's like 100. It's the last stretch of this race. I've been in it before. It's a big crowd going yep. to, that, to yep. that finish line. Really close to the finish line. And, and she just looks like she's not going to quite make it. And, and a couple of guys stop. Turns out that one of them, uh, Brian Cernovic, he sort of grabs her arm along with uh, another gentleman and they start moving. And his buddy, uh, Joseph McGinty, kind of keeps going. Mm-hmm. And then knowing uh, what's going on. Yeah, he's not sure what's what's happening. He he just and he turns around and looks for his his running partner and sees that he's helping this woman. So McGinty comes and turns around and comes back and now she's really struggling at this point. And he just uh, picks her up in his arms. Joseph does. Joseph does and he walks her uh, to about five yards before the the finish line and then drops her off and and she crosses the finish line together. I mean, it's just really uh, inspiring, tells you a lot about what the running community is like. Joseph and Brian, they actually went on a local morning show here in our area. They were interviewed on Monday on Fox 29's Good Day Philadelphia. Um, Here's a clip from them. They provided it to us. Here's Joseph explaining why they knew for them, it was the best thing to do in that moment. Just want to help. I mean, we all push for that goal and we all train. And, you know, when you want somebody to hit that goal, you know, we were just under that two hour mark. So most likely a lot of people are going for that two hour mark. And I figure she trained hard. Why shouldn't she hit it? So. So when this story really broke, nobody knew who the woman was. Right. But uh, we actually had a reporter who who found out and, and got more of the story. Yeah, exactly. Um, the runner, um, her name was Haley Klinger. She's a 21-year-old, a junior from Messiah College, majoring in nutrition. And it was her first half marathon. And um, kind of as the guys guessed, um, she was looking to get under two for that first half marathon. So they really... In a way, they they helped her right there in that final bit. She she actually finished in one fifty four fifty one with them getting her to the finish line. Um, so everything was okay. Medics checked on her right afterward. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a little bit of dehydration and just hitting that wall for her first half marathon. But um, everything was okay a few days after the race for Haley. Yeah, and and I think you know one of the things I really liked about this story again, just because it was so inspirational, was uh, she had talked to uh, you know Runners World, and, and she said that she found real spiritual meaning in the in the situation. Um, you know, she said I was physically unable to finish the race on my own, and God placed three people around me to help me cross the line. I, I you know I think we all really depend on other people, even though we have to run you know most of that race ourselves, and that's just... Yeah, one way or another, we're getting help from somebody anytime we do a race. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so just hit, to hit the warm-up one more time, check it out every morning, go to runnersworld.com slash newsletters, and you'll see Chris's 
great prose in this newsletter every morning. Okay, moving on, and we have to do this story because um, when I looked at the update of this, I realized we covered this in the second episode of the Runner's World show in the kick, and it um, revolves a crazy world record, of course. Of course. And it is from the indoor marathon that's held at the Armory Track in New York City. It's a race presented by the New York Road Runners, and it was its second anniversary, and they had two world records fall again at this event. So two world records fell last year. Right. Is it the same two world records? Same two, men and women. So on the women's side, it actually dropped by over two minutes. Wow. Okay, so first, Laura Menonen, she's 43 of Espo, Finland. She won in 2.42.30. She set that world record mark, like I said, by more than two minutes. And actually, New York City's Kate Pilardi, she also went under the previous world record mark at 2.44.44 set last year. She ran a 2.44.11, so she has the American world record for the indoor marathon. Wow. And uh, how did the men do? Yeah, in the men's race, Christopher Zablocki, a little tighter on the breaking of the world record in this race. He's 28 from Connecticut. He ran a 221.48, so that just beat out the 221.56 set by Malcolm Richards last year. Um, and he beat notable names in that. We've talked about Michael Wardy, and he, he, he and Ryan Howe are up there with the most mentions in the kick mm-hmm. this past year. Um, Wardian was actually in this race, and he, he didn't finish in the top three. Really? And people might remember him most recently from dominating the World Marathon Challenge, seven marathons, seven continents, and seven days, all under three hours. So you, how does this compare to, like, say, the road world record? Yeah, good question. So those are really fast times, obviously. And we should also mention the indoor marathon, 211 laps on a 200-meter indoor track. So that's a lot of turning. You, Thankfully, they turn around halfway, so you're not turning onto your left hip and ankle the entire way. It's just asking oh, for injury. So they switch directions. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, they switch directions. Um one reason, probably there's not a lot of prize money to indoor marathoning. You're not going to get the big cash prizes like you do in a road race. and uh, But that's what this race is trying to do, um, $1,000 to the winners. And there's a $5,000 bonus if you set a world record. So both of these runners went home with $6,000. It's not winning the New York City Half Marathon. It's not winning Boston. But it's at least something, and it, it builds some excitement for something like an indoor marathon. That's pretty cool. But yeah, the the comparison, as you mentioned, um, outdoors, on the roads, 202.57, that's a world record time for the men, Dennis Cometo. 215.25, the record for the women, that's Paula Radcliffe. So there's still a gap there. Um, it's really, in my mind, 211 laps. It's almost more of a mental thing than physical to do a race like that. It would take a lot for me to even want to attempt that. Yeah, seriously. It just seems, uh, you know, one of the things I love about road races is the changing scenery. <laughs> you don't get any of that. Yeah, even if there isn't a crowd. The other good thing, music and a crowd constantly when you're indoors at the Armory. So at least I had that. That's true, yeah. Um, another world record fell. Um, we got the story up on Friday. It's from the New York City half. It happened a couple weeks ago. But reporter Kit Fox, he was able to talk to the man behind this um, really interesting world record that's really had a progression over the past few years. Yeah, you know, this has been a surprisingly competitive uh, sort of race. So this is the um, fastest half marathon while wearing a suit. It's a Guinness World Record. Mm-hmm. And uh, this year it was uh, broken by Chris Estwanek. He's a 36-year-old former professional runner. He lives in Bermuda. Okay. Um, he's from the United States. And uh, this happened he because he uh, had a bar bet with a few of his friends. As all good races start, is it's with a bar bet. As, as all good world records fall, <laughs> right. it's with a bar bet, right? So uh, his friends offered him a free dark and stormy type of drink if he could break the Guinness record for fastest half marathon while wearing a suit. So what was his time? So he did this in one hour, 11 minutes, and 36 seconds. He placed 55th overall. Wow. 
he took almost seven minutes off the previous record, uh, which was 118.13 set last year. Um, yeah, there was a, a suit record at the NYC half last year. Then it was broken a month later. And then this is, if it's a pending record, but he it, submitted everything to Guinness, it would likely stand. It looks like it's going to stand. Uh, what's amazing about this, I mean, not only was it so fast, but this this bar bet happened about a week before the okay. race. He, so he wasn't like prepping for it by training in a suit. He wasn't prepping for it at all. In fact, he filled out the paperwork, but he wasn't even sure if he was going to race in the suit okay. until after he picked up his bib when he walked next door to a suit store. Where did he go? He went to an express. Okay. And he bought one <laughs> off the rack. Hear that express? You have performance fabric in the suit running market. Apparently they do. Uh, You know, the thing that I found most astounding about this was not only that he did this, but that he finished the race looking possibly better than I look in a suit when I first put it on. Yeah, I. it's hard for me to find a well-fitting suit. and Luckily, we don't have to wear suits here at Runner's World that often or at all. Um, but we, we aren't, I think people think we just wear shorts and t-shirts in performance fabrics all the time, but um, no suits for us, unfortunately. So we don't have the well-tailored suit. It's true. And, and even more luckily, we don't have to run in them. And Kit, in his story, he actually said he hasn't received his dark and stormy yet. So his buddies need to get on that. When you crush a world record in that amount of time, give the man at least the one drink that you promised him. Yeah, I think he said he was holding out for a couple. Okay, yeah, at least get a few of those. Moving on, um, I tend to be a bit of a night owl, Chris, and and I'm actually waking up a lot earlier now, too. So that isn't a good combination. And you have two small children. Yeah, I'm I'm forcibly a morning person, I think. So all of, both of us are constantly, like, drinking coffee or just using something to have energy throughout the day, which makes me think we should both pay a lot of attention to a story we got up this week. It's 10 Things Successful Runners Always Do before bedtime. And and there are some definite takeaways that I I think we can have from this. Uh, This story has done really well on the site. You know, what are uh, some of your favorite takeaways from this? I think we've both taken a look. Yeah. So two things definitely that I might try to incorporate into my life. One is that uh, a lot of these elite runners, very successful top end runners, um, they abide by working out the kinks before they go to bed. So 10 to 15 minutes on a foam roller, like that could actually, I could see that de-stressing me before bed instead of doing anything else, like getting on a computer, maybe just foam roll out like that hamstring that's bugging me. Um, The other thing, um, which I've gotten a little bit better at, so I agree with this, is that they do a good job of like contacting their training partners for the next day's run. So it's Everything's in line. Um, I feel like a few years ago, I was a terrible texter. I would text people in the morning about where to go or um, the night before I'd be wishy-washy on getting back to you. So Mm -hmm. um, that would keep me up all night. And I would sleep like, where am I actually running in the morning for my 12 miles? And other people would be mad at me. So um, figuring that out and getting better at that, I feel like that's made the weekend runs a lot easier. And I can even get up a little bit better and it's getting me to bed because I know um, I have to be somewhere to meet people. So that obligation has really helped me. What about you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I have to say, like, w- when I know that I've got an appointment with a training partner, it, it makes it that much more real that I've got to get up mm-hmm. in the morning. It's harder to back out of it. Um, you know, the, the two pieces that I think I really want to take away from this were, uh, and I don't do this enough, is that I see that they, uh, a lot of these runners set their clothes out you know, somewhere really prominent in the morning so they don't have to root through the drawer trying to figure out whether they need a, a long shirt or a short sleeve shirt. They've, they've figured out the weather. They've set out their clothes. And in fact, uh, you know, one runner, Joanna Thompson, who's an Olympic trials marathon qualifier, she wears her clothes to bed. Could never do that. I just It's too itchy for me for some reason, and it makes me anxious to, like, actually want to run if I'm in my clothes. i got to get in my PJs. Well, i got to say, you know, as a father, sometimes you, you really have a very limited amount of time <laughs> if your kids get up early. So I could, I could totally see wearing those clothes so that I can just pop up, go on that run, get back and get in the shower before my kids wake up. 
Um, you know, the other thing that I don't do and I feel like I really need to do, um, I need to have coffee in the morning mm-hmm. before I do anything. I can't mo- make my legs move more than a shuffle without at least a cup of coffee. And It's uh, good you have that motorized floor from your bed to the coffee maker because you couldn't walk. It was expensive, yeah, but it was worth, worth installing. It. Yeah. yeah. But I don't set out my coffee ahead of time, and I really should, especially on days when I'm going to get up early and run. I should just make it, you know, prep up the coffee maker, put everything in there, and just let it. So all I have to do is hit the button because otherwise I'm just stumbling around wasting like half an hour of time. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to check out these other tips to sleep better at night and be able to wake up a little fresher in the morning, check it out. 10 Things Successful Runners Do Every Night Before Bed will have the link on our episode page at runnersworld.com slash audio. And that'll do it for the kick this week. Once again, Chris, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Okay, before we call it quits this week, a final call for stories on why you started running. Maybe it was to lose weight or to find a community or to overcome a personal tragedy. If you've got a great story to share and you are planning on being in Boston in the days before the marathon, reach out to us. Email us the condensed version of your story at rwaudio at rodale, that's R-O-D-A-L-E dot com, or message us on Facebook at RW Audio. You might get the opportunity to record that story with us in Boston and be featured on a special episode of Runner's World's Human Race podcast. Okay, that's it. Thanks to all of you who have given us ratings and reviews on the shows. We really appreciate it. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for a special show. We've got tape from a conversation I had with marathoning greats Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley about their historic 1982 Boston Marathon known simply as the duel in the sun. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.